Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week, thank the- you. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Um, this week, our our guest is Don Jackman Murphy, who is a person, one of my heroes, one of the people who is a a, a leader at the movement level in the folk school world. Um, Don is a fellow in, with the Fielding Graduate University's Marie Fielder Center for Democracy, Leadership, and Education, and is currently in the final stages of her PhD journey. Dawn's area of focus combines her work as a facilitator of the Folk School Alliance and her study of transformational learning for social justice. The Folk School Alliance began in 2013 and includes over 90 North American folk schools in the United States and Canada. This group began meeting monthly through an online platform in 2018 and continues today engaging in multiple collaborations supporting and promoting folk schooling in North America. Um, And I have to say, you know, the here in Viroqua, we love the Folk School Alliance so much that we are members twice. So <laughs> Driftless Folk School and Thoreau College are, are also will be listed on the website of the Folk School Alliance. And Don and I met at a, at a gathering a few years back in Minneapolis of folk schools, largely from the Midwest and beyond, and um, really opened my eyes to to this really burgeoning movement, um, really is, is, is growing and is uh, doing wonderful work. So thank you for joining us to talk about it, Dawn. Well, thank you for all the uh, the, the props there um, about what I've been doing and also the movement. I am very passionate about the folk schools and um, what it could mean for communities around North America that are implementing folk education and folk schooling principles. So. Yeah. We'll get into that. So before though, as a listener to the podcast, you know, that um, what I, we always like to begin with with grounding uh, our conversations in people's biographies. So mm. if you could you could think back to to the moment when you were you were embarking on life as an adult um, when you were 18, 19, 20 years old, where were you? what were you doing and what was shaping your your life in that period of time? Mm. Well, um... I think at, at that point in my life, well, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from um, the north uh, central part of Ohio. And um, my I'm a first generation college student. So my parents, I had a stay at home mom and uh, my father had a car, new and used car business um, and a family of eight children. So, and I'm number seven. Um, so, um, and, uh, we had one, I have one older sibling, older sibling that went to college and then my number seven and number eight are also college graduates. Um, so I think at at that point, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue higher education. Um, most of my siblings did not, um, and I also knew I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And so I picked the thing that I was most familiar with, and that was teaching. Um, and, um, and, and through that sort of education process, I decided that 
um, I didn't really like public education. <laughs> um, and I and through my teaching practicum and observations in classrooms, I just didn't I didn't see um, a context for flourishing, like true flourishing and passion. And um, and so I started to look at alternative um, sort of education, alternative cultural experiences. Um, and, um, and that led me to working with, um, the Navajo nation and the Diné people in the Southwest and, um, and a, a, and a school that really integrated the cultural influences of the Diné culture, um, and, and, and elders and community and, um, and all the the dancing and the drumming and ceremony. Um, and I had the distinct pleasure of being in that environment and really seeing uh, youth flourish. Um, and so that that kind of is is and, and, and that's kind of what in my household too. My mother was a quilter and a crafter and sang every day, although it was debatable on whether anyone really wanted to listen to her singing. <laughs> um, um, but she did it and she did it with spirit um, and, um, and joy. And, and that's what I didn't see in the public school classroom and was looking for it in other places. Um, and so um, Another aspect of my upbringing, and this is earlier than sort of 18, um, is that um, my mother particularly was sort of a silent rebel and a silent influencer within our neighborhood um, and being in the in in Ohio in the early 70s um, in a new neighborhood and a new development and new houses were being built. And so one of the things that happened in the neighborhood was that all the kids would watch the house being built. And it was a gang of children because <laughs> <laughs> um, they were mostly young families um, and, and a lot of my siblings as well, um, that the house would be built, um, a moving day would come in and the new family would show up and all the kids would line up on the sidewalk or uh, at the curb to watch the family roll in. And of course, our objective was to get into the house and to see what it was and to meet the new people and that sort of thing. And one particular time, and I this was around kindergarten for me, so quite young, um, but it was a very memorable experience. Um, uh, the car rolled up the family got out and it was an African-American family, the first African-American family, the first family of color in the neighborhood. And the feeling was very different. The kids went back to their houses. Um, I just remember being like, what's going on? Don't we wanna, no, no, we don't wanna do that. And then over a couple weeks, there was a, another, entity in the neighborhood that put up a petition together to try to get the family removed or to force them out. Um, and my mother uh, was very uh, strong and that that was wrong. And I remember walking around with her and she often 
wouldn't hold our hand, but she would put her fingers down so we could hold her fingers with my little hand. And the family that was working to get the African-American family out of our neighborhood, the mom came out and started talking to my mom. And I only remember the fact that my mother started to sing and sing very loudly and almost shouting. And it was, it's the song, you've got to be taught. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, hmm. to hate all those that your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. And, and, and you know, that song connected to um, anti-oppression and resistance in that way um, is something that, that was, you know, an intimate part of my experience growing up. And it is something that I find resonating in the principles of folk schooling and folk ed. And, and so that's, that's why I am passionate about what I do and what the folk schools are doing in community and bringing community together across difference hmm. or attempting to. So beautiful. That's, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think it, uh, we've explored a few different facets of the idea of folk school on this podcast, but I think, and it's very diverse, right? And I think that that mm. you know, person doing what you are doing, um, kind of like what we're also working on with the idea of micro college, you're always like, what what is this this thing? Is that what it, is? They actually sometimes go by different names, but they share similar inspirations, and um, you know. It's clear that one thing that's connected with folk schools is singing, actually, all the way back mm -hmm. to Denmark and then Highlander School and, and 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 other places. Singing is is one of those things that build a people, right? And so that that's a powerful story. Um, so yeah, so maybe you could share you know, where where you first heard of this idea of folk school. How do you connect mm -hmm. with this? And then and and, and for the purposes and you know, what are, is your definition of that term that you are working with? Sure. Um, well, I first heard of it. I it's shared that my mom was a crafter and I am a crafter. And uh, I, um, in my pursuit of working in education, I landed in community college. Um, and part of my community college experience, I also integrated national service. So we had an AmeriCorps program that I looked at in um, that integrated with teacher preparation. And uh, so a lot of young people coming to do national service and to integrate that into their education as teachers and um, and lots of them wanted to learn how to knit and I knew how to knit. Um, and so we, 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 we put together a group called Knitting Things Done. And if you're familiar with AmeriCorps, they often say we get things done, we're getting things done. So we're knitting things done. Um, a couple people and one in particular from that group of AmeriCorps members um, I've kept in touch with, and she's from South Carolina and she was learning how to spin her own yarn. Um, and she said, we could learn how to spin and we should go to John C. Campbell folk school. And I said, what, what, what's a folk school? Oh, little did she know how much that would change the direction of what I do and where I am and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And little did I know, really. Um, so I entered, I knew, I learned about 
folk schooling through John C. Campbell and through Kraft. Um, and, and that was uh, the time that um, I think the search engine du jour was Alta Vista. <laughs> so we can go back that far. Um, and when I Googled, the two things that came up were John C. Campbell. It's, it's one of the oldest um, folk schools in um in the United States and so Highlander and um I told the song about song I told the story about song and how that how important that is to me and that story and um the work that Zilthia Horton did at Highlander in her um community organizing through music um and 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 that that connection deep connection with identity and culture to anti-oppression and resilience of a community um, really just resonated with me. Um, and so I, I started looking, you know, every once in a while, this, you know, Google came along and then I started Googling and, um, and I saw all these new schools starting to pop up. Um, and decided that's what I wanted to study for a PhD um, and and then started my PhD journey and then started contacting folk schools. So how do I define what a folk school is? And this is often the, you know, I ask the question, what is, what is a folk school? Um, and I am asked this question all the time. And I've decided that the, 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 the definition that I provide is that is it, it is a group of characteristics or principles that organizations live out in different ways. Um, and therefore it is what, what a, you know, if you use a mathematical term is a fuzzy set. The other thing about a fuzzy set is that it is, really heavily influenced by time and context. So a folk school in 1860, or a folk high school in 1860 in Denmark, probably will have the same sorts of principles, but it will look very different than what a folk school looks like in 2023 that is starting in Cumberland, Tennessee, or uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, or um, in Nova Scotia, Canada, um, because you're looking at what your community needs at the time that you're 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 putting this together, and that that really impacts you know what what is done and how you do it in this current movement. Um, that started probably in the late 90s with um, founding of folk schools. They're really centered around cultural um, and, uh, and uh, cultural practices and craft. Um, that's it's a need. It's it's kind of emerging all over North America. This need, and in some cases across the world. So um, there's something that we need. The that is that's coming up and we're trying to meet it hmm. beautiful yeah so that can you can you talk about that need in particular because the the um you know the, yeah the north american folk schools have this distinctive you know connection to craft to folk arts also i think here at the driftless folk school we, we do quite a bit with homesteading skills you know things that are cooking and you know 
foraging and kind of um, food food skills and gardening skills, things like that. Um, but again, embodied, hands-on kind of experiences with natural materials. Um, what is it about our time that 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 this is our need that's emergent? Why is this this sort of stuff important to us? Well, I mean, when I've asked that question, um, that uh, technology has divided us from ourselves and our place and our community in many ways. It's, it's allowed connection in other ways, but like immediate connection through our bodies is something that is lacking. Um, and, um, and, and that connection with our immediate community um, is is lacking so there's some there's social isolation and and sometimes that is um um exacerbated by digital isolation um and and also connection to place um you know a, a tangible tacit understanding of place and self um is not is something that you don't necessarily get through um, the society that we have right now. Um, so, and and what you've described, you know, our so the members in the, in the Folk Education Association of America and the Folk School Alliance are farm schools. They're um, organizing entities. They're craft and community, and um, and some of them do all of that. <laughs> um, they they uh, do language instruction. They do you know stream health. Um, you know it, it it is it is a very it, it's very connected to place. Um, and a, one of Fairbanks Folk School um, and did a little mini documentary as part of a study that we did. And um, Carrie Hamos talks about the folks folks are different in every place and it, it, it's one of the things that makes them unique is that it is what is in the location where the folk school is they do a lot of I mean they center their work on the arboreal forest um, whereas others center the the there's a Cortez folk school in Florida and that it's very different what <laughs> they do and it's connected to what what the community, where you, how you live in the place you live. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's certainly, it's a wonderful thing to, to meet and to, to hear about these other folk schools and you learn something about their place. Right. Um, and also, I mean, I, I can reflect on, um, you know, the, the folks I've been interviewing on this, on the podcast and also the, the people who attended that, that gathering in you know, a few years back in Minneapolis, um, mm -hmm. There are some real remarkable social entrepreneurs, people who are who are you know who, who are stepping out to to make a big difference in their community and to to try something out that is fuzzy, right? It's it's a trying to 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 enact something distinctive in the world. Can you can you talk about you know who who initiates these projects? Are there patterns that you've found, and you know what what where and 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 who these these uh these ninety different folk school initiatives there are are, are who are they? Well, I mean, generally, it start a lot of them start as like two or three friends that like to do a practice, um, and that that uh, and they want to share that practice. Um, I think the the one of the main founders at, at North House Folk School is a boat builder, and um, he likes 
to build boats. <laughs> he likes to do that <laughs> with friends. Um, and, um, and, and that, and it started there with a group of people that were doing that and wanting to share it. And I'll, again, I'll go back to Fairbanks folks will, you know, they like to be in the arboreal forest and they want to bring their families and they want to bring their families' families. And then it started to be something other people wanted. Um, the Land Alliance Folk School um, in Iowa, um, and there she, um, I can't remember the lady's name at this point, but it, she had the whole let's have pizza together. And then it turned into a gigantic thing, <laughs> the community just coming together to make pizza together. Um, and then, and, and it's, uh, it's a couple friends that get together that enjoy a practice that want to share it. Um, and that start to organize around that. Um, the Shenandoah Valley Folk School, which is still under development, um, uh, is the person that's sort of putting that together or sort of leading that charge with a group of folks moved into the area and really wanted to get to know about where she lived and once wanted to make connection and started to look for models for how she could do that in a very structured way. Um, and so she met a bunch of people and this was during COVID. So joined online communities did a survey, what would you want to see in our community? Out of that survey got people that were really interested in and in, in, in the folk school idea. And now they are launching their folk school uh, with a but I think it was, you know, three women. <laughs> um, and I'll and I'll have to tell you, I think it is a, a female led <laughs> um, movement. Um, there um, are men involved but the majority of the new founders of schools are women um and 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 white folk um and um you know that that i think it, that's something to be examined too that um that this is a need within white communities um that uh that um you know are they're trying to meet this in some way or nurture their communities and connection. And, um, and that's not to say that it, it wouldn't um, blossom in other, other ethnic communities and or racial communities, but it just so happens that this is really a white Northern European movement. Mm -hmm. um, and that might have something to do with connection with the Scandinavia, Scandinavian um, roots of it. Um, but I, you know, only about quarter of the new folk schools have any awareness of the Scandinavian folk school movement. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting kind of dynamic. I think um, if you go back, you know, if you could talk a bit about that that history, I think that you you mentioned the the John C. Campbell folk school and the, and the Highlander folk school, which are, you know, a both, you know, have been around since the early 20th century. They both have pretty direct influence from Denmark, right, in their in their origins. Yep, yep. Um, they both landed in more or less the same region of the U.S., which is, you know, southern Appalachia in uh, Tennessee and North Carolina. Um, but they manifested this folk school idea in, in quite different ways. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you talk yeah, about Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, so the, you know, the, the Folk Education Association of America is sort of categories that categorize different movements, you know, folk education movements. So there was the Danish American folk school movement that was, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, what we have sort of labeled as the American adaptation. Um, and that is individuals from the, uh, from North America going to Denmark or Scandinavia. And in the case of Highlander and also John C. Campbell, their founders went to Denmark and were looking for a model of education to adapt to their context. And the Danish folk high school model is what they chose to to utilize. So they brought it back to their communities and adapted it to the needs within their community. For John C. Campbell, I mean, they were really looking at economic development and resiliency within their community. They saw a lot of um, their young people leaving because there wasn't um, economic activity going on a lot of poverty. And so in, in its very beginnings and within the first few months of a year of, of John C. Campbell forming, they started a farm school, they started a savings and loan, they started a, um, you know, a dairy, um, they, you know, they started rural uh, agricultural cooperative kind of um organizing so that young people would stay and not leave the community and and they were building um you know it's identity now remember time and context <laughs> um its identity now is at a you know as a pretty high level arts and crafts school um in, in what they do and how they live out their principles um with those roots it's tangible when you're at john c campbell that it's about building cohesion within those within the community that's there for a week mm-hmm. um now highlander same thing um miles Borton and don west um generally the two folks involved that are named as founders although there was a multi-ethnic multi-racial group of people that founded um highlander they went to Denmark as well um, in the book, The Long Haul, which is Miles Burton's autobiography. He talks a lot about his experience in Denmark. And he looked at the, the schools at the time um, and the way that they were being implemented and was like, no, this is not what I, no, this is not what I want. But be connected to folks that were connected to the early schools. Um, and he said, that's what I'm interested in. And he brought that back to Mount Eagle, Tennessee, that idea combined with African-American influences and, and, and the, the influences of the area. Um, and at the time labor, um, you know, the, 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 there were no unions and there was lots of poverty and there was lots of oppression going on. And they started to really center their work on community organizing and examining 
issues of oppression and finding ways to build resiliency in, in a lot of different ways. And what Highlander, how they articulate what they do now is movement accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, again, it's when you go to Highlander, it's tangible that what is done is creating a community and connection with those that are there during the study study that's there. Um, And when I was there, it was a group of uh, uh, people that were looking at um, gun violence. There was a group of Black Lives Matter folk and and there I was, I wanna get folks pools together, you know? (laughs) And and I felt, how do I fit into this? scenario but all of the folks there were like yes what you do is also very important and important to what we do and we are all connected in this making our society and lives better um i probably went off (laughs) into another uh sort of category there but that's that's kind of the what i know of um how Highlander and John C. Campbell evolved and were adapted from the Danish folk high school model. Yeah, that no, don't apologize for that. Telling that history, I think it's it's history that I think people should know. And in, in general, North American and Danish folk high schools, the story of Highlander, um, those are stories that that I tell whenever I get a chance as well. So because it is it's it's important, and I think one of the things that I appreciate about about folk schools, folk school movement is it does, you know, this is an idea that challenges our, our uh, habit of putting things into two small boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd never heard of, of a folk school um, when I got involved with a group that that was ended up starting the, the Driftless Folk School here in 2006. Um, but I think you know, it was a group of people who were a lot like the ones you described. They were people who had crafts, they were blacksmiths and timber framers and, 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 and people who were, who were interested in, in growing and, and cooking food and, and, and medicines and things like that, um, wanted to share those skills. Um, but they also were, you know, behind be, beyond that and perhaps deeper than that, interested in building community, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there there's all of these, those two things going on, right? Of like, there's some very, you know, we hope that people go home and keep knitting and, and uh, you know, and using these skills. Um, I teach chicken butchering and I do think that people go and use that skill. I hear back from them. So yeah. Um, they come for to, to learn something con- not just for the aesthetic of it usually um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but they but they but even in in the context of a class like that people are building community you see people like exchanging their their contact information and and you know that that important you know social capital is is being built and exchanged in that in that context and it's well, so well, it's, it's, I, go ahead go ahead but i was going to say on that on that note you know i did uh, you know in probably 2017 2018 i did a analysis of the new folk school mission statements because a lot of people at the time and and continue um name a lot of arts and crafts schools in why isn't this school in your list well one i'm like well they they haven't contacted me and say they're interested (laughs) and two um if you look at the mission statements of folk schools as a group those entities that have folk school in their name, they say, we build community through X. 
Right. <laughs> um, so it is it, the 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 thing that occurs most often in a mission statement for a North American folk school is that building community, strengthening community, bringing community together through craft, through outdoor adventure, through etc. And 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 I and I think the folk schools that I've attended, that is a tangible emphasis when you walk into a classroom or a, a context where folk education is happening. It is about connecting with those people in that room <laughs> and hopefully continuing that connection outside. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of Southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. Beautifully said. Yes, yeah, that that that's that's context that, that you are in a unique position to bring, right? Having having looked at all those mission statements. Um, mm. So maybe that that's a great great transition to talking about the Folk School Alliance and the Folk Education Association of America. Um, can you talk about the work that you do and and what can you do as I just think yeah a meta organizer with all of these like local organizers. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that I, because I was really interested in these, all these little schools popping up and wanting to connect with them. And um, and what I found when I started to connect with them and call and talk to them and that sort of thing is, and, and, and actually at Arbutus Folk School here in Olympia, Washington, the founder there, I, I said, well, do you know there are other folk schools in North America? <laughs> no. <laughs> she, I, she was like, I thought I invented it. <laughs> you know? um, she knew of John C. Campbell, uh, you know, and had looked at it a little bit, but, um, and, and there was this, um, and I hear it again and again with what I do with the Folk School Alliance, there's loneliness mm-hmm. <laughs> in trying to create this thing that, that people, A, don't know what it is, and B, think it's a lot of different things and um and and you don't want to necessarily define it define it too tightly because you know um so so what i what i started to see when i was talking to folks is that 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 we they they needed a place to connect in a community of practice so and the the, the concept of community of practice really comes out of like com- um, apprenticeship and, um, you know, whether you're at a wood shop or a furniture um, production and, and, and that sort of thing. But it is this group of folks that are engaged in a similar practice. And, and I wanted to bring that kind of, um, that opportunity to these folks that are developing folk schools so that, you know, there are things that are unique about founding a folk school. Um, whether it's how do you get insurance when the insurance agent A starts says, oh, you're a school. You, know, you need to do all fingerprinting because if you're going to be working with kids and like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not, we're not 
it's a, you know, 16 and over or what, you know, um, and, and, oh, so you're a trade school. No, not exactly. <laughs> you know, so, and, and, it, and it, how do I launch classes and um, what does it mean to be a folk school as opposed to an arts and crafts school or a environmental education? I mean, it, there are so many things that I think that folk school founders need to talk about and, 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 and not feel lonely and mm -hmm. knowing that there are other people doing this kind of work. And so that's the space that I've tried to provide through the Folk School Alliance and this monthly meeting that we have um, and that started, before, you know, when everyone was just learning how to use virtual meeting spaces. <laughs> and um, and uh, what what do we, I, it's, it's evolving. Um, my doctoral study is coming to an end with hopefully the dissertation being completed soon. And, and some of the deep listening that I've been doing with folk school is coming out in that. But my, my idea is that I, the reach that I did and the understandings that I have, I want to help the folk school movement articulate what they do and how they do it. Um, we just recently sent out um, rat cards that kind of try to articulate. Thank you. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> try to articulate that through, um, you know, one, a lot of people, when they hear the word folk, they think art immediately. Um, and the root for a folk school is that folk means people. Um, and so we're about bringing people together and creating community among those people. Um, we're also about uh, craft and connection to self in the current movement of folk schooling. We're about place and history and storytelling and song and music and and all that that entails. And um, and so I'm I, I hope that I've been able to help create sort of a, a frame that that folks can engage with without it being too constricting um, because that's the fuzzy set right, right. <laughs> that's um, and um, also the the idea that what I mean the folk school founders are in dialogue with themselves and their communities and they are acting to resolve and to solve issues within their community so that that connection to community and action within community is essential there. Um, so when people ask what folk schools do, I hope that the new folk schools can, if, if they identify with those, those things that we've, that I've come up with out of the data, that's what the data is saying um, <laughs> is happening. So um, that they can draw on that to share their story. Um, I also provide, um, and through the Folk School Alliance te technical assistance, um, my doctoral degree is not in folk schooling. It is in um, organizational systems and human development. Um, so uh, coming up with, you know, what are some success indicators for the, the direction that your organization is developing? Um, we have also implemented several studies, which is based on an approach called participatory action research. That's where our little mini documentaries come out of. We yeah. did lots of projects, K 
community-based organizing and um, mutual aid projects uh, in during COVID shutdown. So um, strength comes when you have a community to live in. And um, I, earlier I said site, digital site isolation was an issue within community, but um, here I am using digital tools to bring this folk school community of practice together. And and the more that we know each other, the more we're doing together to make our communities better. So yeah. at least that's I hope what we're doing. <laughs> I think you are. It's it's um I think the just the the work that you're doing to to help the this it's a true emergent phenomenon, right? Each of these folk schools is emergent out of their local community. And there you are, you're helping to give a frame and an awareness, a self-awareness to an emergent property at another level, right? At the sort of continental scale level, um, which which is pretty remarkable. I hope that your your research ends up in a book or something like that. Cause it's it's a you know, just from from a systems kind of and like just an emergent property kind of perspective, it's it's pretty interesting. And the other thing that's interesting to me about it is it's is paralleling, you know. What would happen in Scandinavia, right? That there was a field emerged there in a way that transformed those societies. So I think this is again something that that yeah, you know, certainly part of the mission of this podcast is is to spread these this kind of story because it's it's mm -hmm. hopeful. People despair about changing things, and things actually have changed and can change, and new things can emerge in the world. Yes. <laughs> that um yes <laughs> i am there with you and in fact i think it's interesting because so i'm headed to denmark um to talk with uh some folks interested in north american folk schooling because they often are they have a different frame when they think of folk high school and um and often what i have to do over there and and with those communities is say okay think about what it was like <laughs> you know, in late 1800s, <laughs> that these folks are are organizing through volunteer, there's no systematic financial support for this. Um, it's based on tuition, a lot of times, which has all, you know, kinds of barriers there, although lots of the folk schools are looking at alternatives like barter based um, compensation and that sort of thing. Um, but it's it, that emergence, um, it, without, uh, without a very developed structure to help there. Um, and I, and I, I actually, you know, a lot of folks say, oh, it would be nice to have all of that. But one of the things that developed in Denmark is the fact that they, and was demanded by those that developed it earlier is that there is no government involvement in what the curriculum is. Yeah. And that is so important. <laughs> so important. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just, I mean, and, and a lot of folks might think, oh, then that's just, that's wildness. Right? <laughs> um, but no, it, people meeting their needs in their time in their place in their and 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 having that happen in a way that is well supported um 
Yeah, that's how it's able to emerge from its place, the needs of its place. And the the one of the the taglines that the Folk School Alliance uses is leading from the roots, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. That that yep. that's that's a beautiful image, right? And I think that you know, yeah, what that that's emergence, right? And and that has to come from below, right, from the roots. Yeah, yeah. And and I I have to say that that sort of tagline, um, it I did I did a a anonymous survey with the folk schools, and I think it was a somebody in the upper Midwest, <laughs> from what I can tell. But that didn't come from me, uh, that it came from somebody out there in the folk school community. And I really resonated with that. Um, and so did our board. Um, and uh, also there's a Miles Horton um, quote that kind of uh, mixes with that and that you can't cut off a tree and plant it somewhere and expect it to grow. You have to have the roots. You have to know the roots. Um, and a, and a, so I, I hear that again and again. And also another um, famous quote by one of the principals of a folk high school in Denmark back in the day in the 1800s, you, you stick your finger in the soil and smell where you are. And if <laughs> the, the skills of the teacher meet the needs of the people, you have a folk school. Um, or in that context, a folk high school. Yeah. So it is really about listening deeply to where you are in, in the community that you're in. And therefore, whatever that is, whether you call yourself or a folk school or not, um, meeting that need. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, on that topic, I, I know that one of your 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 interests and passions and and it, it comes up in the stories that you've told with us here is on you know on questions of social justice and you know you, the united states of 2023 is is different in some significant ways from denmark of the 1800s um i think there's probably more like regional diversity in in scandinavia in the 1800s than people really realize but you know, people were, were generally of the same racial and ethnic and religious background. Um, they were building a people from from a little bit more tightly uh, related kind of materials in a way, culturally. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so but the word folk implies the building of a people, a self-consciousness self of, of, of a community of people in some way. So I'm wondering about what you've learned or what you what ideas you have about the role of folk schools in in building a sense of peoplehood in our country or in, in our times. Well, I mean, I one of the things about this is, it, like I said before, it is largely and, and maybe exclusively a white-led movement. Um, and um, in this time, in this place, um, you know, what it means to build community from that from from the skin you're in, um, and um, and, and with all of the challenges and the structures that are around us now. And, and um, this, our society in North America is, um, is built on white privilege and, um, and white, um, it's, it, it is a fraught endeavor and uh to try to um adapt in this environment and to 
to be inclusive um, of all the people that are in your community um, when you want to create a sense of belonging, not necessarily welcome. You want them to feel as though they belong. And that means that our folk schools that are white led, um, it's a high hurdle for them to, to delve deeply into how they are creating structures that either create belonging with the people that are in their community or not. Um, and so it, it, what I've identified is this is a big challenge. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> think that's any, I, I'm, that, you know, at the risk of saying something that's very obvious <laughs> um, as some sort of finding. Um, but what, what I feel and what the role of the Folk Education Association and the, and the Alliance can be is to provide support in that. Um, we have a new project um, that's called the Folk Education Network. Um, and that's because you know, the, the term folk school is to some extent very limiting. There are a lot of entities out there doing folk education that are not, that are more diverse in a lot of different ways um, that would identify perhaps with folk education and not folk schooling. And, um, and so we are looking at that the issue of inclusion and belonging and what it means to create a community um, in partnership with other organizations doing folk education that aren't calling themselves folk schools. And, and that one of those is the African-American Craft Initiative through the Smithsonian, um, also the community singing movement. Um, I think um, they've been doing really important work and looking at how they create belonging in the, within their context and the gatherings that they have. Um, hard work, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but essential and important if what we if we really want to live out the idea of creating community cohesion with a broad spectrum of community. Like when I when you asked who's doing this, it's a group of friends mm -hmm. normally, and so therefore that sort of connection with who comes to the folk school is largely created through those friend networks and in our context and time now um those friend networks are not very diverse <laughs> um and um and it takes an intentional examination of that and an intentional uh eye to developing systems that are more inclusive. Um, and I think that this is an important time with all these new folk schools starting to really look at who, who's the community when you say community. Um, and, and, and who when you bring your group together to organize this, who's missing um, from that community? Um, and so so I'm, I'm hoping that the Folk School Alliance and partnership with these other organizations will learn together about that and will co-lead a, a process where we create that cohesion across these organizations. 
one really significant learning that I've had that I was not aware of that the African-American craft initiative has shared um, is that the word folk is a barrier um, to many African-American craftspeople um, and artists because um, even if an African-American craftsperson or artist has, has been trained professionally and has an MFA and all the qualification in fine art was and is often relegated to folk art. <laughs> and so there is an immediate sort of rejection of that word because it it was is viewed as sort of a um a like amateur. announcement or an amateur right yeah. um and um and so that's a barrier that we're gonna have to think about and address and and um work on <laughs> um and um and i'm sure that there will this new partnership and this new project will be countless ways we learn um, about how we do things and how we can change what we do to better work together and create cohesion between um, folk educators. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, it's, that's you can see all the, the challenges that come with that important work. Um, yeah, I guess another another dimension of diversification that's that's important to me and to our project here and is age diversification mm -hmm. actually. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if you from your your vantage point, are you are you seeing um, what what are other folk schools doing to to integrate younger people, young adults, and children into their work? I think a lot of the kind of classic kind of folk school craft groups are are, are often older people who are who have the time and the resources to do that and um, and I think it's interesting that the movement in Denmark starts with the movement for young adult education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things—it's this is it, North American folk schools are different. A lot of them have integrated uh, programming for families, um, and even—I mean—one of the things that happened during COVID and during isolation and sort of the limitations of interacting with people that weren't in your household is that some were offering family gatherings, <laughs> um, you know, um, which actually, which um, I think are continuing uh, offering that kind of programming. Um, it's a lot of intergenerational work. Um, and the 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 idea of having some sort of institutionalized support um, to really grasp and connect with younger people, I think, is um, because most of our the society funds public education in a way you know that probably doesn't meet the need. And then anything alternative, you know, it has to be for very specific <laughs> um, needs. Um, so it, it's a it's a challenge to um, live. I mean, practically and survive as an organization um, if you don't have uh, you know credentialing and 
certification and you're not a trade school and you're not preparing anybody for a job necessarily, um, you know, as you know, you probably know it better than I. <laughs> um, so, um, but there's a lot of family programming. Um, of, and I mentioned before, um, connecting with homeschooling entities and groups um, to provide, um, you know, experiences for those groups. Um, it's not a big part of what the folk school movement is doing currently, but something that they're all looking at how how to how to how to provide that because there's a need. It's it's definitely a need, but how to sustain it? Yeah, so, yeah, problem. Uh, the observation here, working with Thoreau College, you know, the students, uh, you know, college age students often have, in a sense, the ability to, to devote more time. Right, they could take a semester, or they could take a month. We've got a group of, uh, we'll have fourteen students here for the coming month. Um, people between 18 to, you know, all the way to 29 years old. And um, older people often don't have that ability to do that until they're they're right, much older, retired or something like that. Um, but but they also generally don't have access to the same financial resources. So it becomes, because, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you need to house people and there's, there's a different logistical kind of set of challenging challenges with that kind of age group. But, yeah. yeah, so that, thank you for, for your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I just, I want to encourage everyone to to check out the, the website of the Folk School Alliance. Um, it's those mini documentaries that Don mentioned are um, are great. They're great visuals of, of the, the people and the places and the activities that are going on all over North America. Um, really, really inspiring and hopeful kind of set of stories. And, uh, and, and Don, you know, you, Thank you so much for your work in putting that together and uh, providing this context for these these stories to be shared. It's been a pleasure, <laughs> as I as I always say in the folk school uh, um, community of practice. I'm just always delighted to see that people come, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> then and then I leave just absolutely energized um, with with. I mean, the, it's a group of folks that are really. Uh, working for change in their communities, a uh, much needed change. And um, I'm, I, it's a, a privilege and a pleasure to be part of that group and that, that I am, that I am a part of it. So. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your taking some time with us today. Yeah. Thank you.